0: Welcome to the PT and OT Connection podcast by Summit Professional Education, dedicated to helping PTs and OTs improve patient outcomes while earning continuing education credit. For information on earning CE credits for this podcast and satisfactory completion requirements for your state and profession, please go to summit-education.com or click the link of the course description in your podcast platform
1: hello hello welcome and thank you so much for joining me today to talk about getting the most out of your balance training my name is dr brandy singleton i am a physical therapist who is originally from the beautiful coastal city of charleston south carolina And I currently reside and have resided for the past decade or so in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I work as a physical therapist, primarily treating geriatric patients and specializing in fall prevention. I am a certified fall prevention specialist as well as a credentialed clinical instructor. And for my full bio, you can check out Summit Professional Education's website uh, for more details. But I want to start off here by just Acknowledging why this topic is so important. So of all the things I could have decided to talk to you about today, I decided decided to focus on effective balance training. And one of the big reasons for that is one of the reasons why effective balance training is so important is because falls are such a big deal. And effective balance training is one of the things we can do to play our role in reducing or preventing falls. So with falls being such an important topic, especially when looking at those age 65 and over, it's very important that we focus on the most effective balance training possible, right? So another thing that I wanted to mention while we're on this topic is the importance of not minimizing falls and correcting others when they do so. The notion that it's just a little fall, no big deal. Or, Oh, well, well, yeah, I fell, but that's what happens when you get old. Or, well, I didn't really have any falls. Well, no real ones, right? We've all heard some variation of some of those sentiments. And I personally believe those are pretty dangerous sentiments because what they do is they minimize falls. And in addition to that, they take the power away from the person to prevent those falls. Because when you view something as something that just happens to you because you're a certain age or because you have a certain condition, then you've taken away your ability to play a role in keeping that from happening. And so I do think it's important for us to stop those conversations and and to teach that falls do have controllable elements. Not everything about them is controllable, but we can control falls to a degree and we have some power. And in that way, we can give back the power to our patients or to anyone who is at risk for falls or who has experienced a fall. And with that power, we also give a certain level of confidence. So, as we talk about falls, we've all heard various statistics several times over. And I'm just going to throw out a few of those common statistics right here. So each year about 30% of people over the age of 65 experience a fall. 20% of falls result in a trip to the emergency room. 40% of hospital admissions are a result of falls, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right, we can go on and on with pages and pages of statistics in this area. But one statistic that really stuck out to me Even more so than others was this one. When looking at deaths from accidental injury, falls absolutely towered over every other category. And I have provided a chart for you that does cite this data. Falls account for over 35,000 deaths from accidental injury every year in the United States. Now, the second closest category to that is motor vehicle accidents. And that comes in at under 10,000. Okay. And so this goes back to that conversation about the importance of not minimizing falls. Do we minimize motor vehicle accidents? Do you hear people say, well, you know, some people get in accidents. Every now and then people die, but no big deal. No, that's not what you hear. You hear, Whole campaigns about traffic safety, about wearing your seatbelt, about driving safely, not driving under the influence, etc. Because we know it's a big deal and we want to limit the deaths and injuries caused by it. Yet falls account for over three times more deaths from accidents compared to motor vehicle accidents. And falls are often minimized. And so this is why I say this is a very very important topic to take very seriously and make sure that other people do realize how serious this is. Now, back to the importance of addressing falls and having effective balance training strategies. When we're looking at our ADLs, when we're looking at our treatments, when we're looking at improving our patients' balance scores, when we're looking at them being able to get around with increased stability, with less losses of balance, when we look at all this stuff, This is even more important in a healthcare climate where by and large, patients are receiving less therapy sessions and less time during each session to reach their goals due to a lot of the recent insurance changes that we've been experiencing. So we must be strategic and efficient in order to be effective And to offer our patients the biggest bang for their buck within the time frame that we do have them. So one of the major ways that we as therapists provide appropriate exercise prescriptions is by focusing on the intensity and dosage of our exercises. And so some people might be saying now, okay, why are we talking about exercise intensity and dosage right now? Like, aren't we talking about fall prevention? Aren't we talking about balance training? We're not talking about strength training, right? Well, the important thing about this is that when we look at falls, when we look at balance training, it is actually important for us to look at our intensity and look at our dosage and to change it as necessary, just like we do with every other form of exercise prescription we give. Just like you would not give a patient with weak biceps a one pound dumbbell to do curls for four weeks and expect to see a significant change, you also wouldn't do the same exact balance activity, the same exact dosage for your patient over and over again and expect to see a change in their balance. So how do we go about dosing balance training? So we often notice when working with older adults, and maybe even younger people who have certain ailments or injuries, that the normal order of balance reactions is thrown off. We'll see a patient lose their balance. And none of the innate balance strategies that we know should work are employed by these patients. So basically, they just fall over like a tree, right, with never... Uh, with no ankle strategy correction, no hip strategy, no stepping strategy, nothing at all happening. But that person going over as stiff as a board. So the problem here is a lack of proper compensatory adjustments. Stunted innate balance strategies. Ankle, hip, stepping strategies. None of those are utilized by this person anymore for some reason. So one of the big parts of what we do One of the big parts of our job in this is to help retrain these strategies, to reawaken these dormant strategies. And there are lots of ways to do that. And we're definitely going to talk about uh, a number of those today. So one big element in this is called forced response. So basically, we need to do our best to surprise our patient, to provide them with, with surprise perturbations. So depending on your setting and your resources, you may have to be creative to make this happen, especially to make it happen safely within your environment. So this is definitely easiest when you do have some type of harness or suspension system available. But no fear, I know some people are saying, well, I don't have that, so I just, I can't do any of this stuff. No fear, I also don't have a harness system available at my facility. Now, I am strongly advocating for one in my department because I do think it does really give us an upper hand on being able to really go all out with our balance training. However, I do want to know that it is not the absolute only way to do things. And I understand that there's limitations because so many of us just don't have some of these things available and don't have the budgets that will allow us to just go out and get one tomorrow. So what I'm going to look at now is a study in 2022 done by Zhu et al that looked at the use of unexpected perturbations. So sensors were used to look at muscle responses during unexpected perturbations. They looked at muscle activity for small, medium, and large perturbations. They used pushes and pulls using a pelvic belt as well as moving floor plates to evoke their perturbations. So when we look at the different methods here, so obviously a moving floor plate is something that less people are gonna have available at their disposal. But when we look at a pelvic belt, this is something that we either A have or B, can pretty easily replicate with some of the things we have in our gyms. And so thinking about ways to implement these perturbations uh, as we go through these. So one of the main things that stuck out from this study is that when we look at dosing balance, it's important that we provide a large enough perturbation to activate muscles and create muscle memory to improve balance strategies. So again, concepts that we implement with many other types of exercise training we do, looking at muscle memory, uh, looking at those things, looking at that intensity is another thing that's really important with balance training. So basically we need to really throw our patient off balance in order to better affect change in their balance strategies, especially if their strategies are pretty well-stunted. So we cannot improve or change the stability if we do not sufficiently challenge it. And again, that is such an important point to hammer home. So I mentioned another study here that was also done in 2022. Uh, This one was by McCrum et al. And in this one... Uh, It pointed out that most falls are a result of large mechanical disturbances like slips and trips. And that's an important piece to note because if we are not implementing that type of loss of balance within our sessions, then we're missing a big piece of the picture. So when looking at task-related training, for example, it's important that some of the tasks, right, some of the treatments Some of the techniques we're utilizing consists of these types of disturbances because these are the things that cause most of the problems in what we're looking at. So more about perturbation-based balance training. So it is defined as perturbations that require a sudden response to compensate for disturbance or lead to loss of stability. And so I wanna stop right there for a moment because when we hear the word perturbation, and I want you to go ahead and think in your mind right now. Okay, you just heard the word perturbation. So what are the first three things that come to your mind? And, and what well, with specific emphasis on what's the first one? And I ask this because for many therapists, One The the main thing we think about when we hear perturbation is when you sort of uh, push your patient or give them a nudge, right? That's what we think of as perturbation. And some of us think of that as the entire definition, but I want to open that up today because when we look at uh, a lot of these perturbation-based balance training studies, there are a lot more elements that are considered perturbations and a lot of things that we can use in our treatments uh, that can be really beneficial to treating our patients. So some examples in one particular study included pop-up obstacles on a walkway, right? And I think I have one example of uh, doing one of my treatment sessions, having a ball thrown out right in front of of a patient and having them have to immediately react to that. So that actually is considered an obstacle perturbation, right? And so that fits under perturbation-based balance training. Um, Some other examples would be uh, cables that can cause a trip and One thing I wanted to mention here also is that virtual trips, virtual objects and obstacles actually can work for this type of training too. And I think this is particularly interesting as well as particularly important and exciting because this really opens up the possibilities for a lot of therapists, right? People who don't have certain equipment. People who don't have certain amounts of space available to them to do some of the other things we talk about. Virtual reality is a realistic and researched option to implement perturbation-based balance training and actually other types of balance training as well and you know there's various ways to do this um i know there's sort of the video screens you can use where patients are kind of looking at something but what's even more effective of course is those virtual reality goggles where the person literally sort of enters an entire another world and the activities that happen within that world you know if they cause a patient to react in a certain way or step over things or have to move out of the way etc those things actually do translate physiologically and that is a really important point. So one study by Sheehan in 2016 showed a significant improvement in medial lateral stability using perturbation-based balance training, using virtual obstacles. Now, this study was done with uh, with amputees who were using a prosthesis, but certainly could be applied to, to people who are not necessarily in that same exact group. But I think this is really promising and there's been other virtual reality studies out there for various things too. And it really is an area that we can look at in the future going forward and really step into and utilize to step up that dosage and to implement other forms of training that we may or not, may or may not be able to do with the equipment or space that we have available. So I think that's there's a really exciting uh, piece there that can really go forward and allow us to kind of get to the next level in our balance training and some other forms of exercise training as well. So the goal of perturbation-based balance training is to destabilize, right? To trigger the sensory system and cause rapid stability recovery responses. So this limits guarding. And I know as soon as I said that word, a lot of therapists can see their patients now Guarding, right? They got their arms at their side. They're standing there real stiff. They're just waiting to fall. And when they do fall, none of their balanced reactions turn on. So they go over like a tree and are very likely to hurt themselves. And that is guarding. And that is what we want to break. That is a pattern we want to break and stop from happening because it is very, very problematic in our patients who already are at high risk from falls. So what we see in these patients who are so guarded is they basically, they have a, a, the light switch turned off. The light switch to all of their innate balance strategies that help us all stay upright every day, right? When we kind of trip over that curb, but we regain our balance really quickly and forget it even happened. All those strategies that jump in and help us out. For some of our patients, they are just turned completely off. But perturbation-based balance training bypasses their ability to guard. And that is one of the reasons why it is so effective. So what are some of the ways to implement this type of balance training? So some of the options here. So again, getting away from that piece where like, all of the perturbations we think about is when we're pushing a patient. So we're gonna look at the different categories here. So there's manual perturbations, which includes push, pull, and lean and release. So now this category would sort of be that category that's more like what we initially think of the push the pull and then lean and release would be basically our compensatory stepping strategies. And I do have a video of that provided for you and your materials that go along with this course. So feel free to view that when you do have a chance. Um, and just to kind of explain what that looks like to you though, uh, if you have your patient standing and you're doing say anterior compensatory stepping, So you're going to have your patient standing right in front of you, you're face to face, and you are going to have your hands on their shoulders and you are going to have them pushing into you. And you're just going to tell them, hey, just push into me. Now, you're not going to start this off by telling them what you're going to do because what you're going to do is you're going to suddenly let go without letting them know. And what we want to see with that is how they react. Do their balance responses kick in? Are they able to... And with this type of training, what you're basically looking at mostly is stepping strategy. You know, are they going to be able to take a step or maybe a couple steps and regain their balance or do you have to catch them? Right? And so so that's one of the ways we can utilize that type of training. So, another type of balance training is that that uses devices. So, some examples of devices include cables or heathers. So having some type of cable system and having a pelvic belt around your patient and utilizing that to pull the patient's hips in various directions and requiring them to regain their balance or utilize their balance strategies while that's happening. Now, this can be done in various ways. So if you don't happen to have a cable system, now if you have one of those kind of um, multi-use machines that have all types of exercise equipment sort of on one big thing like a Bowflex design, they often do have some type of cable system, and they often do have a pelvic belt. Now what I notice is the pelvic belt isn't often used much, so you may have to go find it in the closet, Um, but that is one way you can connect your patient to a cable system. And and a lot of gyms may have that available if you are in a setting uh, where you do have a gym available. But if you don't, there are also other ways to do this. So you can have a gate belt around a patient and maybe use a TheraBand on that belt, or use some other type of cable in order to evoke some of those pushes or pulls. So those are some of the ways you can implement some of this training within your clinic. Another thing that can be utilized for perturbation-based balance training is obstacles. So having someone throw out some type of random obstacle can work, Um, Having, If you do have some way to make an obstacle sort of pop up, that would be really fancy. Uh, But if you don't, no fear. Uh, And actually, one thing I often do is I actually carry a little ball that my patient can see when they're they're walking around and I'm kind of more so behind them. And then I can just toss that ball out in front uh, when they don't know it's coming and provide that type of surprise perturbation. So that is another option. And another method utilized for perturbation based training uh, or another type of perturbation use is actually treadmill perturbations. So if you do have a treadmill in your gym and, and if that's something that you do utilize for your balance training, you can accelerate it or decelerate it without the patient knowing. You can suddenly start or stop it with the patient standing on it and that also will evoke some of those changes in balance and cause some of those perturbation based losses of balance. So those are sort of a few ways that you can implement perturbation-based balance training. Um, and if you look at some of the photos that were provided here with your course, you can take a look at some of the examples of, of how that is used. So looking at some of the like results in the research of perturbation-based balance training, because we've been talking about this for a little while, uh, as one of the, the recent concepts, I'd say in the past decade or so, it's become more and more popular. And within the past, I'd say three to five years, it's become even more popular. And now because more time has passed, there's certainly more research out on it, uh, which has really pushed it forward more. So, So what does that research say? So the research indicates that even a single session of perturbation-based balance training results in improvement. And fall resistant skills. So this is important to note because what this is saying is in one session you're already seeing some improvements that can be beneficial to your patient in terms of reducing their risk for falls, improving their balance. So I think this is important for various reasons. For one, it shows just how effective this type of training is. And for two, one of the downfalls I hear a lot of therapists say is, well, this is something I don't feel like I can do that regularly because of the limitations in equipment, because I don't feel like I can keep certain patients safe while doing it, etc. So I think the fact that we may not even have to do it that much and we can get a benefit from it can be very helpful to note for people who may be a little nervous about using it a lot. So even using it a little bit is more beneficial than not using it at all. And I think that's something really important. Um, and really beneficial to take from the research on perturbation-based balance training. So now I'll mention a study, a narrative review done by Ferreira in 2022 that looked at perturbation-based balance training. It found that perturbation-based balance training shows encouraging results, including allowing older adults to develop short and long-term retention of fall-resisting resistant resisting skills such as improving feedforward and feedback adjustments of center of mass stability and body kinematics to unexpected perturbations. So again, really promising results in various ways. So another thing to consider in balance training. So dual task training which basically is having a patient complete a cognitive task while completing a balance task. And just to give you a few examples of what that looks like. So one example would be doing a timed up and go test. And at the same time, having a patient recite, um, you know, numbers counting down from a hundred by threes while they're doing that, or maybe have them naming items that you would find in a refrigerator while doing that or while doing another type of activity. Uh, having a patient standing on a compliant surface like a BOSU ball and having random numbers sort of spread out on a door and calling out numbers and having them have to search while they're standing on that BOSU ball and doing a reaching activity. So all of those things are implementing more of a, of a dual task approach. And the reason why dual task approaches are important for one is because a lot of people actually run into increased difficulty with their balance and stability when they have to make decisions, when they have to think about things, when any cognitive element is thrown in. And so this is a way to identify and train for those things. So when looking at the benefits of implementing dual task training... One study compared a group completing single task exercise to one performing dual task exercise over a four week period. So each group completed the same exact exercises. The only difference is that one group was actually doing a cognitive task during the exercise. So the results of the study, the dual task group showed quicker improvement as well as more overall improvement compared to the single-task group. Uh, so hence showing the importance of implementing that dual-task training and some of the benefits that you can get from that. So going back to our conversation on dosage. So looking at a 2021 study by Raj Benishi, which focuses on Parkinson's patients, And for a lot of us, um, many of our balance patients may be Parkinson's patients or may have Parkinson's-like symptoms or disorders. And some of you may actually specialize in treating Parkinson's patients who do often fall under the category of high risk uh, for falls for various reasons. So this study looked at highly challenging balance training and the effect it had on the treatment with Parkinson's patients. So the exercise focus in the study was on six parts of the balance control system which included biomechanical constraints, stability limits, anticipatory postural adjustments, postural response, sensory orientation, and stability in gait. So the interventions included, and I want you to listen closely to these because these are the highly challenging balance training activities that they did in this study. And these are many of the things that we can certainly implement fairly easily with our patients with limited to no equipment. And so these interventions included perturbations on compliant and non-compliant surfaces, dual task training, gait with varying speeds, lunges, single leg stance with reaching, backward walking, overhead reaching, step ups. So those are the exercises. Again, all things we can certainly implement in most of our settings quite quite easily. So the results here, there was a statistically significant improvement in balance shown for those receiving highly challenging balance training. And I think this is awesome because again, sometimes when we think of challenging a patient, right? When we think of something that's highly challenging, sometimes we feel like we have to reinvent the wheel, right? We have to be so incredibly complex. And really some of the things that fall into the category of what is challenging for our patients isn't necessarily that complex. It's many of the things that we already have in our toolbox that we may forget to pull out because we're looking for something else, right, we're looking for something bigger, but often we have exactly what we need and we just need to use it more. We just need to bring it out and take it out of that toolbox and put it to use more than we do. So the next thing I'll talk about here is, you know, is, is perturbation-based balance training the only way to go? Right, so that with the increased popularity of perturbation-based balance training, which definitely works and is shown to be an effective strategy, there's been some argument over whether therapists should even bother with some of the other balance training methods that we have been using over the years. So should we stop all of our other balance training techniques and use perturbation based balance training techniques only? So my answer is no. Now, some others may certainly believe differently, and that's okay, because having differences of opinion is how we learn and how we grow and how we continue to get better. But I'm definitely a proponent of a multifaceted approach, and I definitely see the benefits from various forms of balance training. And also note that depending on what equipment's available to you, some forms of the perturbation-based balance training may be more difficult to implement with certain patients, but they still may benefit from other forms of balance training in addition to some elements of the perturbation-based balance training. And it's important for us to remember that we have a lot of things that have been tried and true and certainly do work. And so just because there is something new that works really well, doesn't mean we need to throw all of that away because some of that is still incredibly beneficial to us. So another thing to remember here is that the basics are still effective. Right. There are a lot of tried and true approaches that we have been utilizing for some period of time that have strong research behind behind them and work for our patients. And so we should certainly continue to implement those things as well as look at those basic areas. So checking range of motion, and we're talking about balanced patients specifically. Often the ankle range of motion can play a large role in why some of our patients are falling. Uh, A person who lacks dorsiflexion can have a very difficult time accessing their balance strategies. So making sure we're taking a look at that, and if they do have issues there, working into those areas, uh, one of my favorite activities to work on with people who do have dorsiflexor range of motion issues is standing on an incline board or incline ramp. And we have some that are various heights, because for some people, standing on a pretty low one can be difficult enough. Um, and then you can progress up to a higher one. And this can also double as a great balance activity in addition to a great range of motion activity. Um, another thing I like to do for those patients who do have tightness in dorsiflexion is having them use a tilt or wobble board, right? So they can kind of tap into their range of motion Uh, actively as they're doing exercises on the wobble board, which again is also another great device to actually use for our balance exercises in general. Um, But do not forget to check that range of motion, because so many of our patients do have tightness in their Achilles tendon and their gastro complex, and this can cause a lot of problems. Another thing to note is many of our patients have fear of falling. And fear of falling can play a huge role in balance and really the patient's ability to improve their balance because some patients have so much fear that it almost cripples them. I have seen people who could probably be functional ambulators based on their strength and range of motion, but because of their fear, they were mostly wheelchair-bound. And so breaking through some of those patterns of fear of falling is another big thing. We definitely don't wanna leave out when we're talking about effectively training our patients' balance. So just to go through a couple techniques that I find to be fairly effective in people who have fear of falling, and I do wanna preface this with, I do know that there's definitely patients with varying degrees of fear of falling. There's definitely people who have maybe small elements elements of it, and then there's the people who have that, that's such an extreme fear that even getting them to lean forward to Start to begin a sit to stand transition can be difficult to impossible. Um, so, you know, obviously, depending on where your patient is in that progression, it may be more difficult or maybe easier to implement some of these strategies. So, one of the ones I like to start off with for people, especially if they're already having issues when they're in sitting, is working on forward flexion. So, many of these patients are in retropulsion or, or in a posteriorly pushed position when they're sitting, and of course, when they're standing as well. So getting them sort of out of that pattern is one of the first steps to that. So working on things that sort of cause the person to naturally move forward into a more midline orientation can be really helpful in sitting. So doing some type of automatic activity where they're getting something from the floor, reaching forward. Uh, If they have some type of table in front of them so they can't see the floor, to sort of reduce that fear and give them a bit more comfort and have them maybe rolling a ball across that table. And that can be done in sitting or standing, just kind of break that pattern and get them into a more forward position. Because again, often they're pretty far, uh, too far back into the posterior plane. Another thing that I find can be really beneficial for patients who do have fear of falling Is using the wall and having them do some wall standing activities and what the wall does is it basically acts as our ally because if you've ever worked with a patient who has some pretty bad fear of falling and they have retropulsion and you try to help them stay upright and standing they get really strong and can push you over very very easily um, due to just the amount of retropulsion and fear they have with that reactive tone uh, that you'll see with that So having that person stand against the wall is helpful because they can't push the wall over, basically. Uh, And so getting them against the wall gives you a bit more freedom to then start working on, on other activities with them. So often for this patient, just starting off on the wall and having them just stand there can be enough for that part of the session. And then once you get a little bit more acclimated and they get more comfortable in midline, then having them do some maybe reaching activities away from the wall and progressing to stepping activities away from the wall to sort of start breaking those fear of falling patterns. And I have had some pretty good success with this personally. Uh, But again, it does definitely depend on the patient and the degree of fear of falling that they do have present. So another thing we'll talk about a bit is uh, ways to challenge balance using some common gym equipment because one of the things i hear from a lot of therapists is you know some of the equipment i see used in some of these studies and some of these courses are just equipment i don't have they're they're very advanced they're very expensive things so we're going to talk about using those basic things that most gyms have and also because we don't want to leave out our home health therapists. also things that can be put in a trunk and carried into a patient's home uh, pretty easily and i'll try to remember to include some of the the alternates for some of the things that may be a little heavier. Um, And I'll actually throw out one right now. So the BOSU ball is something we're going to talk about. And there's actually sort of a smaller, lighter half ball that is not exactly a BOSU, but is much easier to carry around, put in your trunk and carry into a patient's home that can be substituted when we do get to talking about some of the exercises that can incorporate a BOSU ball as a compliant surface. So what we'll mention here, though, is just when we're looking at effectiveness. So, you know, we've seen, uh, we've talked about perturbation-based balance training. We see how effective that is. So are some of the other techniques we've been using effective at all? So there was one study that actually looked at the use of the foam mat-compliant surface, uh, as well as the wobble or tilt boards, whatever you may call those, um, surfaces that we use in balance as well. And so in 2022, Pavana did a study that looked specifically at these two Um, exercise sources on knee OA patients and knee OA patients often have joint proprioception deficits that leads to increased falls and so that was one of the reasons why that particular population was chosen for this study when looking at balance training and fall risk. So the patients in this study were instructed in balance training using wobble boards and foam balance pads and the results found that both of these patients showed significant improvements in their balance. And it also showed that the wobble board group showed an increased improvement over the foam balance pad group. So a few important things to note here. So for one, we did see significant improvements in balance in one of our tried and true approaches using some equipment that most therapists do have available to them and can utilize with their patients in their settings. And another thing to note is if you were kind of trying to figure out, well, which one's more effective? If I only have time to implement one of these during my session, like what's the one I'm gonna choose? Well, the wobble board was shown to be slightly more effective. Now that doesn't mean that the foam mat isn't also good to use, but just if you're looking at them head to head, the wobble board was shown um, in this particular study to be more effective. So what are some other options for common gym equipment we can use for things within our settings? So uh, the BOSU ball is one. uh, The TheraBall is one that we can certainly use for various things, as well as some other compliant services. Now, I will say the BOSU ball is one of my personal favorites, and I do have a couple um, videos and maybe some pictures also available to you on various uses of the BOSU ball. What I like about it is when we talk about causing those large perturbations right, and implementing various balance strategies, I just find it to be a very effective way to do that with one piece of equipment. And so in one example, I have a patient doing a lunge utilizing a BOSU ball. And what I like with that is the lunge is already a pretty effective exercise to work on balance and work on the muscles that help us balance. But throwing the BOSU ball in there helps us implement more balance strategies, right? We're going to get our ankle strategy and our hip strategy uh, more into play when we do put that device in. And then another thing I like to do with the BOSU ball is have the patient actually step on it and step through. And I do have a video of that available for you too. And the nice thing about that is you're really able to work on uh, postural control, uh, concentric and eccentric control during the motion. You're utilizing all of your innate balance strategies, right? They're gonna automatically turn on uh, without the option to really guard to turn them off because of the nature of the activity. Um, Another activity I like to do with the Boksu ball is sort of one of those dual tasks activities. And again, you have a video of this one too where the patient is standing on the BOSU ball. So you can either do the more advanced version where they have both feet on the BOSU and they can be reaching for particular um, items or objects that you have. So that's the dual task piece where they're reaching for random items that are placed in random random positions. And you can also do it in a more modified approach where the person just has uh, one foot on the BOSU, uh, which will be a little bit easier but still a really beneficial activity. Uh, you can also, pull in the foot intrinsics, and this can be done with really any compliance surface, but by having the patient take their shoes off or either be barefoot or be in some type of minimal type of footwear that allows their foot intrinsics to really get involved in the activity is a great, great way to strengthen sort of down to the lowest levels because the stronger your foot intrinsics are, the more you can sort of access that ankle strategy at those lower levels for those lower level perturbations as well. Um, Another activity is doing compliant surface sidesteps. So, and we'll use the BOSU as an example here. So you have the patient sidestep up to the BOSU and then back down. So you're working on that lateral stepping as well as lateral stepping strategies. Postural awareness activities, you're engaging the abductors, which are often fairly weak on our patients and are a muscle group that do often lead the falls because they do cause some gait abnormalities that make our patients less stable So some bang for your buck approaches, and we talked earlier about why having a big bang for your buck can be really important for our patients. Um, Another activity I really like to throw in there, and this is uh, one I can consider a dual task activity, is the sidestep squat. And you can use a TheraBand to make it more difficult, but basically have the patient do a sidestep and squat, and then sidestep again, and continue to repeat that activity. You might be saying, so what's the dual task part of that? Well, this is actually a pretty complex activity cognitively because you have to remember to step, squat while your feet are apart, bringing them together and step again. So uh, it is actually a dual task activity and, as well as a balance activity. And again, if you throw the TheraBand then you can really increase the balance challenge and add more strengthening to it too. So as we talk about those bang for your buck activities, uh, those are some that I include uh, within that category. Um, Some other thing you can, things you can do is you can have your patient standing on compliant surfaces while throwing a ball or while having balls thrown from, uh, to them from various directions, etc. So again, utilizing some of that gym equipment that we all have. And again, I did want to mention for the people who say, well, I'm in home health, BOSU balls are so heavy. Um, again, you can check on Amazon or maybe some other sites too and find that sort of um smaller, lighter BOSU ball. It generally kind of doesn't have as big of a bottom. And they're generally a little bit smaller and definitely lighter, um, but can be just as beneficial. Um. So another thing I wanted to note here too, you know, as we're talking about all the various things we do with our patients. So when we look at balance training within like our ADL sessions, you might say, well, all the stuff you're talking about, you know, didn't seem to focus on ADLs. Well, actually, it does, right? Because when we look at the areas in which ADLs occur, right, the kitchen, the bathroom, you know, those are some of the areas where falls are the most prevalent. And we can throw the bedroom and the living room and areas like that into it as well. I would say incorporate some of these strategies within those areas uh, because those are some of the most important areas and some of the areas where these falls are most likely to happen. So make some of those slips and trips happen. Give them some perturbations. And I joke with some home health therapists I know, in, in some homes, right, you don't even have to find obstacles because there's lots of obstacles already available um, with all the things that um, people tend to collect or, or have laying around, et cetera. So working on getting through some of those things and getting over those areas. Uh, if there's pets around, they can often be uh, some great obstacle perturbations. So there's various ways to uh, to sort of implement this Uh, within the home setting or within settings that are more um, sort of ADL specific as well. Uh, I would say definitely take the things we've talked about within our balance training and what that looks like and how to dose that balance training. You know, throw your patient off balance, do those surprise perturbations, you know, while they're in the kitchen walking across about to reach into a cabinet, you know, focus on that stuff too. Um, And so those are great areas to make sure we're implementing this type of balance training as well. And I just want to mention some of the exercises we talked about were a few few examples of what you can do. I do have a more extensive balance course that's a six-hour course as well as a two-hour balance course as well if you did want to just dig in and get more details and more exercises. Of course, today we have one hour, so we are certainly not able to go through all of those things, but hopefully we're able to give you um, a good bit of ideas and ways to implement those ideas into various exercises and strategies. So what I wanted to talk about next is improving our patient's confidence. So when we look at our patient's confidence, you might say, so how do I make somebody confident? Well, there's various ways to do it. And it's actually a very important part of what we do. Because one of the reasons why a lot of people fall is because of the lack of confidence. We just talked about fear of falling, right? And fear sort of encompasses that... Lack of confidence. So ways to build confidence. So one of the big things we talked about much earlier in the presentation today was that falls are preventable. And just that fact alone, just stopping people when they say falls just happen because, saying falls are controllable and falls are preventable and making them truly understand and believe that is one piece of that puzzle. And then the next couple of things I'm going to talk about, you might say these are counterintuitive Because we're going to talk about teaching people how to fall correctly. And I am doing quotations right now because obviously we know we don't want people to fall at all. But when someone is on their way down and you know there's no way to save it, there is a way to fall that is better than other ways. So we're going to talk about that. And we're also gonna talk about how to get up, right? So you might say, we're trying to tell people not to fall, but now we're telling them how to fall and we're telling them how to get up after they fall. Surprisingly though, this actually does build confidence because when people know that there's a way to fall more safely, they actually tend to fall less because they're not as worried about falling. And if they know that they know how to get up off the floor when they fall, they tend to be more confident and thus less likely to fall and less likely to have to even utilize that strategy but we want them to have it in their toolbox because I have run into way too many patients who have had that fall where they laid on the ground for two days and the phone was out of reach because it was up on a high countertop and they couldn't get to where they needed to go. They weren't injured, but they just couldn't get up and they stayed there until their sister decided to drop by and you know call the ambulance and got them and then they had all types of other medical issues that were caused by them being there for two days with you know no medication, not being able to move, etc. Right, so we want to have we want people to be able to get into a safe space if they did fall, and that is a part of balance training, in my opinion. So the first thing we're going to talk about is how do you fall correctly? All right, so once somebody loses their balance and they are just going down, first thing is don't tense up. Right, we already know what it looks like when that person's guarding. When they're guarding, they're going to go down like a tree, and they're going to go down fast and hard, probably on a bony prominence, and be more likely to fracture something. We don't want that. All right, so if they don't tense up and instead focus on tucking their body, so bending the hips and the knees, tucking the chin, turning the head away from the fall is another important piece because a fall where someone hits their head is never a good thing, okay? Okay. So tucking the body, bending the hips and knees, tucking the chin, turning the head away from the fall, trying to land on a meaty area. The buttocks are a great meaty area of the body. And then the important piece here is try not to just smack down on one spot, but try to roll into the fall. And what this does is it allows a largest a larger surface area to spread the impact of the fall. Okay? So those are the ways to fall quote, correctly. Again, we hope to not fall at all, but if we're going down, we'd rather do it in a way that we're less likely to get a concussion or a brain injury, or less likely to fracture something, and less likely to end up in the ER. And this is the way to do it. And so then the next thing we're gonna talk about is fall recovery. So once the person has fallen, I know, don't want it to happen, don't wanna hear the word, but we all know, It's not 100% preventable. Even when we get to that point where we take control of it and we say, I am in control of falls, they can still happen, right? Um, I do wish they were 100% preventable, but, you know, that would be a whole other world we'd be living in. It'd be a great place. But how to get up. So fall recovery, what's it look like? So one of the first things I teach a patient is get yourself into the prone position. That's the easiest position to get yourself in where you're able to get up. So from there, getting into the quadruped position would be step two. So for most people at this point, I would say look at where you are, assess your environment, and crawl to something you can use to assist in getting you up off the floor. So for most people, this is going to be a chair, a couch, a bed, uh, maybe some type of step stool uh, would actually work for this as well. I actually had one patient... Um, who had been well-trained prior to me ever laying eyes on them, and they actually had step stools in various rooms, then they called them their fall stools, um, and they used them whenever they fell. Now, I will say, I-, I wouldn't want a person to get to the point where they need fall stools all over the place, but um, it-, it actually is not a bad idea. And what I'll note here, too, so what they're going to do is... Crawl to something. So if they are crawling to a bed, for example, which often our patients have incredibly high beds, which is a whole nother conversation for another day, but it's gonna be very difficult to use an incredibly high bed to get up once you've crawled to it. And so what we would recommend here is have the patient push their body weight into that mattress and hopefully allow it to push over enough so that they can use the box spring to then get themselves up. And so um, this can also happen with the couch where the cushion is just a bit high, a bit tall. And so uh, one thing we can do here is have the person push into the mattress, right? I mean, sorry, push uh, the couch cushion over and then they can use that harder part sort of under it in order to get up. And so those are options there if they run into that issue. Another thing that usually comes up in this conversation when we get to the crawling piece is what if the person has knee OA What if they've had a recent total knee surgery? Uh, What if there is some reason why them crawling on their knees just is not happening? So for that case, I would tell those patients to actually scoot on their butts until they're able to get close to something they can use to get up, like a chair, a bed, a couch. And then from there, go ahead and get into quadruped. So then they have to spend less time on their knees and they don't actually have to crawl on them. They still will have to spend the moment on their knees in order to get up. And I will note, for people who do have uh, one side that is injured, so someone who may have had um, total knee, somebody who has an OA in one knee, uh, someone who has a uh, a prosthesis or amputation on one side, the, the sound leg should be the first one going up. And I will say for some amutees, I have taught them to actually take their prosthesis off and it makes it a bit easier for some of them to get up. Um, And I have found that to be the case more than it's not. So that's another thing you can teach uh, if you do have a patient who is in that category. So again, a few things that can be really, really helpful um, in building your patient's confidence and also keeping them safer because if someone falls, them being able to get up right then as opposed to getting found two days later is gonna make a huge difference in their health. So the next thing I'll mention here in terms of, and this is more so a continuation of our effective balance training, because I think important thing for us to always address as therapists, no matter what we're treating a patient for is, what is it going to look like when they leave my care? When they go back home, when they go to their assisted living, when they go wherever it is that they live, are they going to continue certain things? And and what are some ways that we can sort of ensure that they are more likely to do so. Okay, and so community-based programs to maintain stability and build confidence can be a really important element. So what I'm gonna talk about is just a few community-based programs that are out there and that are available in many communities for our patients that we are the people who can point them in the direction to because a lot of these resources, people just simply don't know about. Uh, It's not that they just don't want to use them. They often don't know they exist. So we're going to talk about a few of these resources, including a matter of balance, silver sneakers, rock steady boxing, and power. So the last two of those are actually specifically Parkinson's based, um, but they can certainly be beneficial um, for patients who are at high risk for falls, which Parkinson's patients do certainly fall into that category. So you know we know home exercise programs, right? That's something we often give as the, the last thing we give our patient. You take this home, continue it, and you'll be okay. Um, and there's often our go-to, but let's be honest. Many patients have issues with compliance and follow-through, and there's been so many ways we've tried to improve that compliance, but we know, right, it's still an issue. Also, traditional home exercise programs don't incorporate other important pieces to the puzzle, such as socialization, giving people sort of more of a purpose. However, there are many resources out there that do all of that. And so a matter of balance is a really awesome program out there that I wanted to mention um, that I found a lot of patients don't know about and a lot of therapists and family members don't know about either. So what it is, is an evidence-based fall prevention program designed to reduce fear and falling and increase the activity level of adults over 60 years of age, and specifically adults who are living in the community. So the people that we have sent home already. And so what it includes is a group discussion, problem solving, skill building, assertiveness training, and exercise training. And the goals of the program are to view falls as controllable. And y'all know I already love this program just because of that first goal, because that is what I started today talking to you about. Um, Setting goals for increased activity, making changes to reduce fall risk at home, and also exercises to increase strength and balance. So they still have those exercises in there we were gonna give our patients anyway. So this this program is taught by master trainers, Coaches, guest healthcare professionals, um, and guest healthcare professionals can include us. It generally includes physical therapists, occupational therapists, um, and exercise physiologists. We're one of the other big groups of um, guest professionals that do um, play a role in this program. And if it's something you're interested in, uh, check it out because you could also be a part of the program yourself. But the classes consist of 8 to 12 people, they complete Eight two-hour sessions, so either one time a week for eight weeks or two times a week for four weeks. And the second one is the most common of those. And so how to find this? You might say, well, okay, I've never heard of this. How do I find this? So check your local Council on Aging website. So that's how I initially found the programs in in my area. Um, You can also just do a Google search and look for Matter of Balance and put in your area or your zip code, and you may be able to get some hits there. Um, but you might say, so how how beneficial is this program? Do we have any evidence that it, that is even helpful? So there's actually been some research on it, and matter of balance, participants were found to have a $938 decrease in total medical costs per year compared to non-participants in their age group. So that right there says a lot. That says that these participants are going to the hospital less. They're having less issues. Probably having less falls. Um, so a really cool program that is available that we can definitely be the person who tells our patients about. And then there's Silver Sneakers, which most of us know about. And I think this is a more well-known program. And so um, this one is provided free of cost for seniors through certain he- health care plans. And it actually provides either in-person or online classes, um, exercise classes for seniors. Um, and it's actually pretty easy to check the eligibility on SilverSneakers.com website to see if your, uh, your patient or even your family member's health plan does include this benefit. So there can be community classes at community centers, parks, etc. And there's also classes at traditional facilities like local gyms. And again, there's live and on-demand classes and workshops that can keep patients moving and as well as give them that social element too if they're going to the in-person classes. There's also some great senior centers out there. So most areas have some local senior centers that have free or discounted fees. They often include social programs, wellness programs, pool access, as well as other events that seniors can attend. Um, I know where I am in the Charlotte area, we have some really great ones that have awesome programming. Um, We have the Tyvola Senior Center and the Levine Senior Center. So if you are in my area, those are two that you know you have available. If you're in another area, Definitely just Google local senior centers, put in your um your area, your um zip code, whatever it may be, and you may be able to find some resources there as well. Uh, so then Rock Steady Boxing. So this is a really neat program that is available for people who have Parkinson's or Parkinson's like illnesses. And so continued mobility is even more important after our care for our Parkinson's patients because so much research has shown that they actually have a slower progression in their Parkinson's symptoms if they keep moving. So Rocksteady Boxing uses non-contact, boxing-based fitness to promote movement and improve the quality of life of Parkinson's patients. Um, And it also includes socialization. It looks at those large amplitude movements that we know are very important for people who have Parkinson's. Um, as well as continued mobility. So a really neat program. I've actually had a number of patients who have done Rocksteady Boxing, and I have heard so many amazing reviews on it. You can check uh, rocksteadyboxing.org to look for a gym directory where you can direct your patients to gyms that are in their local area. Um, And then there is power. So that is capital P, capital W, capital R, exclamation point, power. Um, so this is also a Parkinson's program which was started by a physical therapist by the name of Dr. Becky G. Farley. Um, it's been around since 2010, and it provides Parkinson's-specific exercises to help maintain and restore skills to allow people to maintain their functional status and ADL levels. Levels. So therapists, as well as other exercise professionals, can become certified in power, and there's a recertification period of um, three years for that But the program focuses on targeting specific Parkinson's disease symptoms, such as the rigidity, bradykinesia, incoordination, reduced self-awareness, and emphasis on training high amplitude. Again, high amplitude is going to come back at you every time on Parkinson's, uh, functional skills. So the goal for this program is maintaining mobility, maintaining ADL status, improving weight shifting, and spinal mobility. And on the Power website, there's a directory to find certified professionals or gyms in your area, so another awesome program to point out to your patients, uh, and something to get involved in as a therapist, um, if you are interested in Parkinson's patients. So I want to take a moment to um, to thank you all for joining me today, and we've kind of gone through the whole gamut of you know why this is important, you know, to some of the treatment techniques that are important to utilize both new and old, as well as ways to sort of continue that mobility and hopefully keep our patients safe and mobile uh, once they do leave our care too, which is always an important part of the puzzle. So I hope that everybody was able to find some things that you can utilize and implement with your patients today and ways that you can really benefit them and get that bang for your buck that we talked about. So thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day and Even more importantly, I hope that you take something from this course that you can utilize the next time you step into the clinic with your patients.
0: Thank you for listening to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education. To view accreditation information for your state and profession and access completion requirements to receive a certificate for completing this course, please visit summit-education.com or click the link in the course description in your podcast platform.